Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Ooh, it's good to see all of your wonderful faces. I was going to say smiling, but that's not unanimously true. All right. Oh, thank you. Um, so if you have been here for a minute or two or you are just joining in, we are continuing in our series entitled Walk This Way. Uh, I did hear for the appeal, the call for uh, recognizing our special guest. Where are you? Just, just show of hands. How many folks I got? Guess, 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 guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see you. I see you. Okay. Good, good, good. I don't want to make you stand up and uh, tell me about where you came from and who your current pastor is or how many kids you have or how you found us. I'll ask you that in the lobby after the message. Um, but I do just want to understand how many people I have in the room who may be just kind of merging in on the series so that I can help you uh, get up to speed. And so uh, we started this series a few weeks ago. We kicked off Walk This Way uh, by taking a look at the practical half, as I call it, of the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 4 through 6. And the reason that we wanted to take a look at that practical half of the book uh, was because the front half uh, gives us lots of principles, the deep treasures uh, of God's words. Matter of fact, there's one of these iconic phrases found in the front half of the book over in Ephesians chapter 1 where it'll say, you know, you have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And it's like, oh, ooh, okay, what does that look like? Well, the further unpacking of that, what it looks like and how to use it is found in the back half of the book, chapters 4 through 6. Uh, featured in chapters 4 through 6 are, are multiple moments where the writer will say something like, well, walk this way, like walk worthy of your calling, or walk in unity, or walk in love, or walk in this manner. Like, in other words, carry out these great principles live and in person in this way. And so we wanted to explore some of those spaces where we're called to walk this way. That's what we wanted to do from a textual perspective. And then from, a, from just kind of a life perspective as a church, we just kind of recognize that that's deeply what our church needs in this season. We just needed to hear some really granular detail on what it means to walk out our Christian faith. And so we wanted to kind of supply you uh, with a lot of that material. And so that's what we have been doing over the last several weeks. Uh, again, if, you're, if you are a member here, you've been here, but just kind of in and out, that's what we are in the overall kind of arc of what we've been covering in God's Word. And so uh, just last week, if you were here or following online, uh, you may have also heard uh, just kind of a, a message around putting on and putting off. You've heard that phraseology quite a bit if you've been reading the Bible. And so today's text goes into a little bit more detail about what it means to put on and put off certain behaviors. And I want to walk us through um, uh, that passage um, together. But before I get there, I want to ask for the Lord's help. All right. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you this morning. And I'm thankful for every opportunity to take up your word and to be able to serve your people. Uh, I am begging you uh, this morning, oh God, to enable us to experience uh, just the, the manifold promises of your word. Uh, multiple places. I remember, Lord God, the, the authors saying that had it not been for your word, they would have gone astray. Oh God, would you grip us in that way so we would experience the, the tethering of your word to keep us steady? Uh, I've seen it in your word where it says that it uh, is able to divide to the piercing asunder of soul and spirit, uh, joints and marrow, and separating the thoughts of intents and that nothing, the thoughts and intents of the heart, and that nothing is hidden from its view. Would you allow us to experience that precision of God's word this morning? Uh, I've heard it said uh, by your son, Jesus, uh, that um, my words, they are spirit and they are life, uh, Lord God. Would you allow us to experience the life of your word this morning? 
uh, I've heard it said and seen it in the scriptures that it is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we will be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Lord God, would you allow us to experience something of that utility of the word in our lives to teach us about ourselves, our sin, our Savior, our sanctification, and a need for deeper and greater service. Lord God, I've seen it on the pages of scripture, and I long for it. When the Apostle Paul said, when I came in among you, I claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that your words would not rest in the words of men, your faith would not rest in the words of men or in their oratory abilities, but in the power of God, specifically yeah, that there would be a demonstration of the spirit so that it would be undeniable that we have encountered you. Lord God, would you allow us to experience exactly that this morning? This is our earnest, and pr- our earnest prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles with me, go ahead and turn with me in them to Ephesians chapter 4, and you've already heard, read uh, a passage uh, from uh, 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 verse 25 through 32. Now, just before we get there, I have a little bit of a confession to make. And uh, this landed really well in the first service because someone actually uh, met me uh, after the service and sought to, to take care of this great uh, gap that I have in my life. And that is, I have never received an edible arrangement. Never. Never. This may be changing soon, but as it stands right now for today's message, I have never received an edible arrangement. Now, just so that nobody looks at me oddly, does everyone know what an edible arrangement is? Right? Have you been maybe at home or at work and you seen like a coworker get one of these little uh, baskets? These fla- it's an arrangement, kind of like would be with flowers, but it's really like a fruit. You've seen these, right? An edible arrangement. I've never received one. I wish I could play so I could do something just like really low and dramatic, but I've never received an edible arrangement. Now, what's interesting about this is while I have never received an edible arrangement, I've never even seen, received a regular flower arrangement, like a bouquet, you know, and anything like that at my desk, you know, celebrating my anniversary or my birthday or Valentine's Day. I've never got any flowers, anything like that. And I don't really want them. I don't really want them. But what's interesting about the edible arrangement I believe that this is an industry game changer when it comes to the way we show gifts and and appreciation for people. And it's a game changer in this regard. When somebody in the office or wherever gets a bouquet of flowers, who cares, right? It's like, oh, that's cute. Look, oh, such and such got a bunch of roses. You might inquire who's that from or what is that for, and they tell you or you read on it. It's like, oh, okay. And everybody goes back to their business. But when somebody in the office gets an edible arrangement, it's like, okay, how you doing? What, would you, what was that for? You know? And anytime you ask a person why they got an edible arrangement, you know what happens? They also go, oh, and would you like some? And everybody knows the answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would like some. And the reason that the edible arrangement is the game changer in the industry of hospitality and gift giving is because it shows how the true nature of a gift is not just to benefit the recipient, but to also benefit those who are around them. I have never received an edible arrangement, (laughs) right? But I have been a beneficiary. So out of every time that I've been in an office or in a space where somebody has gotten an edible arrangement, I have actually been able to get some. Now, what's even more shameful about this is that I have, my sister actually used to work for edible arrangement, and I still have never received an edible <laughs> arrangement. But where am I going with this? Uh, one of the things that I think is beautiful about the edible arrangement is I think it is a prophetic icon, an analogy, if you will. Because I believe that the gifts that we have been given 
are designed to have not only great, wonderful benefit to us, but also to have benefit to those around us. They are to, to create a certain sweetness in the lives of others who, who they may not even be having the same event, but they're at least benefiting from what goodness has been distributed into our lives. And I believe that that is a great analogy for how God has even gifted us and enabled us to, to produce fruit in our lives. So much so, when we read today's text, I'm going to be making a series of comparisons because I believe that the believer's life is better served to look more like a fruit basket than a stone tablet. The believer's life should look more like a fruit basket than a stone tablet. Why? You see, when, we, when you tail off of last week's message and you think about putting on and putting off, you get these very granular details here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 and following. Watch this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth to, uh, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him uh, labor. Do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share uh, with uh, anyone that's in need. Let no uh, uh, corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up uh, that fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice and be kind to one another. Uh, be, be kind hearted, be tender hearted, forgiving one another as Christ in God forgave you or as God in Christ forgave you. As you read through that, that's kind of like a, like, a, like a condensed New Testament version of the Ten Commandments. Because there's about 10 solid do's and don'ts that really become the signature of the believer's life. And let's just be honest. As we're moving into the, in, in, in the world and we're going to work and, and living in our various spaces, that's what people look at us like. They think that we're just a, a, a collection of rules and principles to be followed. We just look like enormous stone tablets filled with line after line of what we should and should not do. Now, here's the deal. The Christian life is marked by clear precepts of what we should and should not do. But that's not the only picture. That's not the only dimension of the believer's life. You see, there's another portrait of the believer's life as well. And I believe that it is found right in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Look at this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Then, everybody in the audience can do both of these lists. But what's interesting is, if I came to you and, and, and I had on a big t-shirt that says, do not you know, suppress the Holy Spirit, do not be bitter, let the thief steal no more. If I came in with that t-shirt, you'd be like, oh gosh, he goes to that church. <laughs> but if I came in with a shirt, with a shirt that said, love, peace, kindness, self-control, joy, you'd be like, oh, where you get that? Notice why. So, so, so therefore, I believe that the believer's life should look more like a fruit basket than a stone tablet. We want to have that kind of impact in the world where we live. The stone tablet is necessary, but so is the fruit basket. I believe that we need both. 
And so as we look at some of the, gradual, uh, the granular underpinnings of today's message and what it means to walk this way, how do I become a person that is doing more than just managing uh, uh, technically, morally, and, and in a very performance-oriented way? Do more than just manage a group of rules that, that make up, that seemingly make up the believer's life. How do I become less of a stone tablet and more of a fruit basket? And that's what I want to explore today. How do we become the proverbial edible arrangements of our world? Right? Taking the gifts that God has given us, and not only let it be sweet to us, but also sweet to others that are around us. So the way we're going to explore that is by taking a look at what I believe to be one of the most beautiful portraits of a fruitful life in the Scriptures. And it's not found in Galatians. It's actually found in Psalm 1. Now let's compare Psalm 1 to what we just read in Ephesians 4. Psalm 1 reads as follows. Many of you have probably got this memorized. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates in it day and night. And he will be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, and he will produce fruit in his season. His leaf will not wither, and he will prosper in all the things that he does. Y'all know that one, right? And if you don't, we're going to walk through it slowly. So, when we look at this portrait, I believe, now no, notice how the, the person's life depicted in Psalm 1 also features some of the same prohibitions, things that they don't do, but they also have this, under, this kind of underlying uh, foundation of fruitfulness, and that's what I want to explore. And so, as we explore what it means to be more like a fruit basket than a stone tablet, I want to take us through just three basic ideas that will be the underpinnings of today's text. Number one, the person whose life we see there that I kind of sped through and you hopefully read through, the person's life depicted in Psalm 1 is marked by three things. Do I need to read them more slowly or just tell you the three things? You choose. Read it. All right, read it. I'm going to read it, and then I'll tell you. All right, here we go. See if you can pick up on them. I love that. I love the audience participation. Um, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all he does, he prospers. Three big things I want you to see in this. Number one, whoever this is, and we all want to be, he is particular. He is particular. I'll unpack what it means in just a moment. He is particular. The second thing that is very clear to me in verse 2 is not, he's not only particular, but this individual is peculiar. This individual is peculiar. And I want to I get into some of that. Not only is this person particular and peculiar, if you see it, the third one is he's what? You should be able to get this even if you're not a professional communicator. He is what? He's prosperous. I like that. Keep trying. He, he's planted. Yes. Go through grace. Come on. He is planted. He is planted. That's right. Who is that? All right. All right. All right. Mm. So three big ideas. He's particular, he's peculiar, and he is planted. Now, exactly how do these things work out to us being more like a fruit basket, fruit basket than a 
than a stone tablet. More like a person who is both, both gloriously and wonderfully feeding and, and, and in the environments that we're in and having a great effect rather than someone who is just marching in with all of these do's and don'ts written all over our lives and our behavior, right? How do we become more of that? And I want to be very careful here. I love the Ten Commandments. Absolutely love them. I love the, all, I love the whole law. Uh, because I, I look at the Lord Jesus Christ and he comes over there in Matthew chapter 5 and he takes each one of the 10 and begins to show how it is that he is the fulfillment of each. And he helps me to give Christological context and trajectory to each one of the 10 commandments. I absolutely love them. I don't have an issue with the Old Testament. I'm one, not one of these guys who's, who's, who's all down on the Old Testament and I only read the words of Jesus and I think Paul is missing it. Oh, no, no, I'm not one of those people. I believe in the full and plenary verbal inspiration of God's word. I love every syllable of God's word. I love the law, but I do believe that as the law gets, gets more, more, uh, more, more, more gravity in my life, I begin to see how the Lord wants to flesh out the law so that I don't look like a stone tablet. I look like an actual person. I'm not just a robot trying to follow the, the 10 or even the 680. I am a person who is a walking embodiment, hopefully, of the sanctification of Christ. And so when the law comes out of me, it looks like fruit and not rules. And so I'm hoping that you'll join me in that journey. So as we look at Psalm 1 as kind of our, 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 our means or our methodology for becoming more like what we're told to do and not to do in Ephesians 4, follow me carefully. What does it mean that he is particular? Well, he is particular about three things. You all saw them. It said he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor he, sits, he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Those of us who are striving to be more fruitful, to be a fruit basket rather than a stone tablet, to be fruitful people, we are going to be very particular about who we do life with. We must be particular about who we do life with. That's kind of the continuation of the sentence. And being particular about who we do life with means that we pay careful attention to our counsel, our cohort, and where we find comfort. Those are the three groups. Notice he says he doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, who are my counsel? The counsel are those people who I allow to speak into my life and their words become a part of my value system. The fruitful person doesn't just let anybody into that category. Now, I assure you that you probably have not sat down on a piece of paper and mapped out your entire social circle and said, each person is a, here's my counsel, here, here is my, you know, here's my, here's my other category, here's my crew, you know, here, here's my cohort. But I guarantee you that they are there because every person in my life falls in some kind of category. They have some kind of voice. They have some kind of role that they play in my life and that I play in their lives. And so when it comes to my counsel, if I'm going to be particular about the people that are in my life, what does that particularly look like? You see, because everyone who comes into my life is campaigning to be in one of those spots. They don't wear T-shirts that say, I would like to be a member of your cohort or your council. They don't do it. But what they do is they automatically show up in that area based on certain factors that we have going on sociologically. You see, your council typically becomes the kind of people that you might call your ride or dies or your crew. This is just a, a group of people with whom we have developed a sense of commonality because maybe they think like us, or maybe they look like us, or maybe we've just spent a ton of time around them, or maybe we've just grown to like them and enjoy them for a variety of different reasons. And as we do life with them, they become our counsel. Now, if you don't know who they are, these are the people that when something of a drastic nature 
or an extreme nature, good or bad, an extreme high or low. These are the people with whom you are tempted to pick up the phone and say, you ain't going to believe what just happened. These are the people who you call when your parents upset you. These are the people who you call when you, you get a bonus or a raise. These are the people you call. These are the people that you tag on Facebook when you really want to make a profound statement. You have a council. And some of your councils are actual people, and some of them are virtual spaces. Because it's the spaces that we feed from and that we take our ideas from. Someone is always informing our perspective and speaking into our lives. And those who are fruitful for Christ are being very particular about who we allow in that space. So that's why the fullest functionality of one of the most mature expressions of God's word, according to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. By the time that you all should be teachers, you have need that somebody teach you the first principles of the word, and you still need milk. Because if you did need milk, you would have, by way of exercising your senses, been able to discern the difference between good and evil. You see, that's the fundamental function of the Word of God itself. So according to James, when the Word of God itself, which has a fundamental function of being able to discern good and evil, is engrafted within me, we're told in, John, in James chapter 1, to receive with all gladness the engrafted Word. When the Word of God is engrafted within me, its characteristics become a part of my characteristics. So that's why the milky believers, the babies, don't have discernment yet because they hear the word of God, they know the word of God, but they have not exercised it in a way that it improves their capacity for discernment. So they let anybody into their counsel. But not you, right? You're regularly practicing God's word so that not everyone is allowed to be in your counsel regardless of how big their voices are. The second category we need to be uh, very particular about is our cohort, our cohort. Now, the cohort is just typically, it's just a group of people who have a shared experience. You know, shared experiences have a, uh, a very interesting way of drawing us together. You see this a great deal around people uh, in the armed forces. You see this a great deal where people who otherwise may never develop the common bond, but because they have worked through common tragedy and common struggle, they have an automatic bond. You and I, <laughs> veterans or not, have a cohort. We have a group of people who seem to have just had to dredge through certain spaces in life. And especially when you find yourselves alone. You know, if you move from Atlanta to Oklahoma or Dubuque, Iowa, and you're in the fruit section at the grocery store and you see somebody wearing an ATL shirt, you just kind of like, <laughs> oh, how are you? I see you're wearing an Atlanta shirt. Are you, are you from the area? I'm, you know, from there too. Knowing you from Kennesaw, you know. You know what I'm saying? Duluth. And you over there talking about, oh, I'm from Atlanta, too. You know, you from Brunswick, you know. But, but does it not happen? This is a co You're looking to build a cohort. You're looking to build a cohort. You're looking to build a, a, a small, we have automatic connectivity. This happens all the time. A little, little diversity one-on-one. Like black people, when we go to like big conferences and we're like the only person in there and we see like another black person, we're like, hey, what's up? It's automatic connectivity. What's going on? Something goes down in here, what's up, I got, I got you. Automatic cohort, Share, shared struggle and commonality in spaces where you feel like limited. And I'm pretty sure like if you're a female and you go to a place and there's a bunch of dudes around and you're like, oh, let me get over to their booth, right? Does it not happen? So all of the spaces where we have shared hardship, shared commonality, in many places we'll develop a cohort. But guess what? 
Just because we develop these shared connections with people doesn't mean that they need to share real space in our lives. But it can happen so organically that we're not using our discernment that this person, while they look like me and we love and enjoy each other and we can laugh and we got some of the same shared stories, this person should not be actively in my life because whoever is in my cohort, whoever is in my council is either being conformed by me or I am helping to conform them. And it's usually a little bit of both that's always happening. There's always a certain amount of life transfer that's happening. Therefore, believers who are being intentional have to be particular about who we do life with. He says that he doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. I don't know if you've ever sat in the seat of the scornful, but I have. You ever been, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a security guard at the CNN Center way, way, way back in the early 1990s, I'll never forget them training us on crowd mentality. You could take a crowd of people that came to a ballet recital and send them to a hockey game, and they will adopt the same mindset. Same people that was in there with tuxes and, and their fingers on their chin looking for grapes and wine juice and, you know, and, 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 and wanted cheese to be brought over, wondering where we are in the program. That same group, you drop them into a hockey arena in the same stands, and everybody like this, ah, hit him with the stick. Because there's, some, there's this crazy thing called crowd mentality. It is a real thing that, 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 that impacts the ability to control, to control loud groups, uh, large groups of people based on the venue that they're at. They adopt and share in mindset. And so it becomes super important that when, we, when we're in a crowd or when we, when we allow people into our space that we're being very particular and not just because they are saying some of the same things that we're saying or came to see some of the same things that we came to see. It's very important that you're being particular about what? Your counsel, your cohort, and your, those you have comfort with, who you get comfortable with and sharing a seat with. This is part of our walk. Now, when I said earlier that all of us are either being conformed or we are actively conforming, I want you to understand kind of that through the lens of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've heard that. That by testing, you may discern, that's big, that's big boy word, right? You may discern, that's mature people stuff. You may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the will of God doesn't always come in the form of thou shall not and thou must and shall. You understand why you need to be a fruit basket and not a stone tablet? Because the will of God doesn't always fall strictly within the words of the ten. Therefore, you need discernment to see which of those principles apply in this moment. And that's where your counsel comes into to, to play. Because while the Spirit is the source of my fruit, my community are the sorters of my fruit. So as different things are working their way out of my life, I want a good, credible counsel because these are the people when I'm at my best or even better, more, more carefully, when I'm at my worst, who can call me out, who can hold me to account, who can speak truth and say, hey, man, remember, this is what you are about. This is what we are about. I, I'm, in your, I'm, I'm in your corner. I'm in your counsel. I'm not just in your life. I, you, we want people who are echoing the sentiments of Scripture. We want people who are further excavating and teasing out the values that they know that, 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 that Christ has put in my life to transform me and to conform me. And so while the Spirit is the source of the fruit, my community is equally as important because they are the sorters of that fruit. They help me to put things in their respective categories, perhaps when I'm not thinking so clearly or when I think I am, but maybe I've got a blind spot. The man who is growing in fruitfulness and the woman who is growing in fruitfulness is particular. And they're particular about what? Who's in their life, right? Particular about who they do life with, their counsel, their cohort, and also who they find comfort with in shared speech. 
Well, there's, there's a second verse here. Did you see it? Did you see it? Okay, good. Um, uh, verse 2. And his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates in it day and night. He is not only particular, but he is also, he is peculiar. Peculiar. What is this idea of being peculiar? What do I mean by peculiar? He just has a really different way. One of my favorite passages when it comes to being peculiar is found over in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people is what some versions say. Uh, this one says, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Uh, uh, once who had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word peculiar in the Greek as it was used in the, uh, uh, in the uh, King James, and now it's just kind of broken out into a sentence of people of his own special possession, is literally like there is this fabric, and God just said of all the people, I'm going to cut out for myself. I'm going to tear out or reach in and get out a people for myself, formerly from the same cloth. Previously, people who had no mercy, now they got mercy. Why? Because God tore them out of that fabric. You understand? So, so we will have many commonalities to the people that we've been torn out from. And so, but, but this peculiarness, this peculiar nature of how God has gotten his people is interesting. One of the best modern day analogies of peculiar people, I think, are vegans. We got any vegans in the room? Okay, put your hand up, Shantae. Stop playing. Listen, Shantae, I, oh, oh, <laughs> what's up? These are, all, these are all vegans that I know well. Is Nick here? Nick, are you here? He's one of the foremost vegans among us. But listen, um, I know most of the time when I come to the edge of stage and I talk about vegans, it's in a very Chappellean way. And... I am not here to rag on vegans. I actually like them because I believe they, walk, they, they present this really beautiful analogy of what I think all believers should be. And here's what I like about vegans, and Nick in particular, right? I don't know if all y'all like this, but this is how Nick is. Yeah, on, a, on a regular basis at my house, we have something called men and meat. Anybody ever been to that? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Men and meat. I mean, there's men actively walking around with paint on their chest, you know what I mean, in the yard with just whole pieces of meat hanging from their mouth. We're throwing things. We're, we're making things. We're barbecuing the whole cut in the ground with fire coming out. We're just rolling pieces of meat in there. Men and meat. This is all guys from the church just eating meat. Nick, a vegan, doesn't stay home, doesn't opt out, doesn't say, oh, I can't make it, guys. My ankle hurt or I got a doctor's appointment. No, no, no. Nick comes in with a bag of plant-based hot dogs. <laughs> and he's like this. Hey, guys, I got some plant-based. I got some vegan hot dogs. Y'all want some? And we're just standing there with active steak in both hands. And we're like, I, I guess, come on, you know. And then Nick goes in, he goes over to the grill, and he's like, yeah, I have space here, I can cook these. He's like, yeah, man, get in there. And I love Nick for that because, because he doesn't view his peculiarity as a reason to opt out of fellowship and socialization. I'm talking to y'all. I ain't talking about meat prefaces here. I'm talking about the life of a believer. We are a peculiar people who will look odd and different in so many different spaces where we move. But do you opt out? Has your peculiarity become a hall pass for non-participation in the lives of others who are radically different? But no, the, 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 the vegan not only is a, is a peculiar person, but he has a peculiar sense of discernment. He has a peculiar diet. He doesn't just eat anything, even though anything can be eaten around them. You ever notice that about them? You, you ever notice how the, how, the, how the, take Nick for example. Nick comes in and he doesn't just sheepishly go, oh, I, I brought these incognitos. You think they'll laugh at me? No. He's got them held up in both hands like, he's, like he slayed an animal and brought it to be part of the feast. 
And then he's regularly socializing it to us about how good it is and, and, and how you cook it and how long he's been eating it. Sharing recipes, being creative about it. I love that peculiar nature about him because he's fully bought in to being peculiar. And I believe that we as believers too need to be fully bought in to being peculiar. I know so oftentimes when you, when you think about this delicate balance of being a fruit basket versus a stone tablet, you think that means you need to abscond from meaningful interaction with people in the world. No, if you're growing in the gospel, you should be growing in relationship with people in the world because you need to be sharing that edible arrangement that God has put in you. What's your name? I, I like you. I, no, no, I'm just saying, I, sorry. This, this is what I do. I like that. But we should be sharing. Be comfortable with being, being peculiar. Be comfortable with that. Because, and, and so, so and another area of discernment that I love about the vegan. This is, hear me, I'm talking about vegans, but I'm talking about all of us because we should be peculiar people. Invite them to any restaurant, a good vegan. Invite them to any restaurant, and they will look at a menu and with discernment. Everybody else is just ordering whatever their belly says. And the vegan goes, um, I think I'll have the, you know, aioli lettuce wraps. You know, and I'm like, okay, then. They even, they've, they've learned how to do life in every space and order what they need to order, but they're fully engaged. They eat what they eat. They meditate on what they meditate, digest what they digest. I mean, just in case you're getting distracted, this is the life of the peculiar believer because it says that this person in verse 2 has a very particular delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. This idea of meditating day and night is really, this meditation is this idea, is it, if it's a, there's an animal in view who's got kind of the two-stomach thing going on where they chew up food and take it down and then draw it back up and chew it again and then send it back down. That's what the life of the believer with his word should be, constantly eating it. There are many who think you are peculiar because you're constantly reading the Bible. They say, like, well, wait a minute. Isn't it just like any other book? Why don't you just read it and get done with it, put it on a shelf and read something else? No, because we are called to be peculiar in our diet, peculiar in our discipline, peculiar in how we delight of its word. I don't want to miss anything. I want to savor it over and over. And that is the call of the believer's life is to be just as peculiar as the vegan is about his diet, that we will be peculiar about our interactions with God's word. Hear me carefully. Everybody in this world has a Bible, but not every Bible is the Word of God. I'm not talking about versions or anything like that. Everybody has a booklet. Everybody has a either psychologically or heartfelt codification of principles that help them answer the great seven worldview questions. You don't even know that you have this, but you have figured out how to answer the great seven worldview questions. Everybody wants to know questions of origin, purpose, and destiny. Right? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? You have an answer to that, and you've derived it from somewhere. Which Bible did you get it from? Did you get it from the one you crafted for yourselves? Or did you get it from the one that came from your council? Or did you get it from the, did you get it from the Word of God? Every one of us has an answer for the, the unique anthropological differences between where a man comes from and how it differs from an animal who, who wasn't made in God's image. You have an answer for that. You may not have fully articulated, but you have an answer to that great worldview question. You have an answer for what you think happens after a person ceases to breathe. You have an answer for that. This is one of the seven worldview questions. You have an answer for the value of history, whether or not you think it repeats itself, whether or not it imposes itself on contemporary society. You have an answer for the value of history. 
You don't have an answer for what does it all mean in the ultimate reality. Like, why does any of this stuff matter? You, and I have answers to that. You have a response and an answer for whether or not morality is local, subjective, or whether it is objective. Whether they are truths that are transcendent to all people or whether they are things that are just based on comp, uh, uh, culture, country, context, and time. You have an answer for that even if you don't talk like this. Every human being that I have ever met has answers to the seven great worldview questions, and the way you answer those point to what has become your Bible, even if it is not the Word of God. This is why the peculiar person is always meditating on it day and night, because he or she is constantly refining their answers to the great worldview questions. And then beyond the great worldview questions, they're trying to look at how to live more precisely and to discern and to discover God's will for the moment and the moment that they're in. Because they believe that the word of God is actually living and not just literature. These are peculiar ideas, are they not? But apparently, this is who you are, a peculiar people carved out of a unique situation for God's unique use to model to the world what it looks like to be a people who didn't have mercy, but now who do. Notice that this, this passage there in 1 Peter says that you and I were called out to proclaim the excellences of him who, who, who we once were in darkness. We were pulled out not to be some secret society wearing hoods, chanting, mumbling, and, and nobody can find us on Sunday. It says that we were called out to be this unique beacon of what it means to belong to him and to be his. We're a peculiar people. Let me say this. Um, one of the great responses, regular responses, that you'll probably get when you're sharing your Bible or your truth with others is someone will say to you, that's your truth. I, I want you to understand that all truth belongs to God. Not all truth is necessarily biblical in its orientation, but all truth belongs to God. Hear, hear me carefully. All truth belongs to God. But not all truth necessarily translate to a redeeming understanding. Romans bears this out when he says that the things that can be known of God are made clear and obvious, even his eternal nature in Godhead. This is Romans chapter 1, uh, thereabouts, verses 18 through 20. There are things that can be known about God that are clear, readable, obvious, and visible, but yet they get suppressed. Let me tell you something. Before there was CNN, before there was Fox, before there was NPR, before there was MSNBC, there was just information. And let me tell you, every one of those news stations, I don't care which one you think is from hell and which one you think has it right, all of them do the same thing. Every single one of them has a portion of truth that when put in a particular context will serve a certain trajectory. What the Bible does uniquely is it says, okay, here are just raw nuggets of truth. Now let me show you how to contextualize these in a redemptive trajectory that points toward the, Christ, the, the cross. What I love about the Bible, its simultaneous strength and beauty, is that it's able to drop into society, take a singular piece of truth and say, okay, here's how it connects to the historic fall. Here's how it connects to what God, the historic hope that God wants us to have in Christ. It beautifully and wonderfully describes the brokenness of the human situation, and it may not use the vocabulary that everybody is familiar with, but it does beautifully describe it. And why does it need to be described? Because everybody is living their whole life out of either discovery of the answer of the, to the seven worldview questions or out of what they've already arrived at as the answer. And that's what the Bible's purpose is to do. And this is why the believer has this peculiar diet. Let me say this. Uh, in the business world, we learned very early on that statistics always tell a story, but they don't always tell the truth. 
You can take a spreadsheet of numbers and data, any number, and you can curate that data in a way that shows growth, that shows trends, that shows uh, buying habits, that shows opportunity. And then you change the context. It's like, oh, my gosh, the company is crashing. Oh, my gosh, we're better than everybody on the whole planet. It's a great game that's done all the time in many companies all over the world. And it's done not just in companies, it's done in the comforts of our own home. The news channels that you watch, regardless of how favorable you might be, you must be in a constant mode of discernment because they are able to curate any subset of facts to frame any particular truth that they want. And it doesn't mean that the starting point isn't true, it just means that the trajectory ain't true. This is why we need to be a peculiar people with a peculiar diet, moving in this very peculiar way. And understanding that while it is the spirit that provides the fruit that has grown up in our lives, it is the word that must provide the guidance of how to apply it in our lives. Anybody can walk around and say, well, hey, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to do this or that. Anybody can say, I'm going to pick up the stone tablets. Why do I need God when I can just live out the precepts of the stone tablets? Because the Lord isn't just looking for people to follow rules. He's looking for people to produce fruit. And that fruit comes from a life source. Here we are, principle number three. Ready? Thank you. Um, he is like a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. He is planted is the third precept of being a fruit basket rather than a stone tablet. He is planted by a certain source, and he produces in a certain season. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, please safeguard your hearts. If you are planted by the right source, you will not always produce fruit in every single season. Stop evaluating yourself based on how heartily you are producing fruit in a certain season. If you own any plants, you might live in an apartment and the best thing you got is a cactus that sits on the windowsill. You can come by the house and I'll show you some other versions. But, uh, <laughs> but, but here you understand that there are seasons where a plant is deepening its root, where it's extending its leaves, where it goes into a necessary season of dormancy, and then there's another season where it is producing fruit heartily. The Bible is replete with agricultural examples. One of the foremost that I absolutely love is over in the book of John where Jesus tells the story of the sower. He says a person goes out and sows, and he says that the word of God is planted in certain ground, and then there is something that immediately pops up. But while that seed is going out, the adversary is actively trying to steal it. You had better believe that even now as I'm speaking to you, the, 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 the word of the Lord, if I am what I'm saying is true, it is purposing to find a place in your life to plant itself. At the same time, the adversary is working heartily to either uh, prompt a text, to prompt a memory, to prompt a moment, to prompt a certain level of responsibility, something that you didn't get done, somewhere else that you need to be. Focus on, I don't know, some wires coming out the back of the drum, some safety hazard up here on the rug, the sweat around my chin. The adversary is working overtime to get you to do anything other than to focus fully on the fact that there is word that needs to be dropping into your heart and producing fruit. There's another dynamic at work where the Bible says that the same seeds that drop into our hearts and produce fruit is then oftentimes competed with by the circumstances of life. And this is why I want you to see this, that when the Spirit grounds us, it is, if the Spirit is grounding us, it, 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 it grounds us regardless of what is happening around us. 
In other words, if I'm grounded in the right place, if I have been like a tree that is planted by rivers of water, and, and, and I believe that Jesus who says that he would supply us with this living water and we, wouldn't, and we would never have to come back to these dead wells again. I believe that that supply, I believe this is a, there's a subtle, soft analogy of the Holy Spirit that is flowing beneath the life of this tree that is grounded in the right place and has access to this water that gives it its ability to survive regardless of the season. And some seasons are designed for intense fruitfulness, and others are designed for intense rootfulness. Just getting deeper. And no one else around us may know, except for the one that made us and the one that planted us, may know what season we're in. And so I want us to, to understand that being planted, we need to be planted in the right place. Being planted means that I have a certain source and that I have a certain season, and that I'm mindful of that. And I'm being discerning about the seasons that I'm in. Understand that in the background, underneath my life and your life, the Holy Spirit is working to germinate faith. We cannot conjure faith on our own. Not biblical faith, not redeeming faith. The Holy Spirit works beneath the surface to germinate faith so that when the Word of God is preached, it is met with a believing heart. That's the Holy Spirit. That's His work. But not only to germinate faith, but to also then to cultivate within us faithfulness so that we don't just believe, but we also leave. Right? We, we further grow in a place where we can receive from our environment all that God has from us. And after we're leaving, then we should be, again, multiplying and producing fruit. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit from the ground up. Don't let that distract you now. That's the devil. So germinating by the Holy Spirit in faith, cultivating, and then multiplying in fruitfulness. These are all things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in my life when I am planted in the right place. Now, here's the question. It says, planted by streams of water and yields its fruit. Where do I need to be planted? Where do I need to be grounded? I want to spend some time praying for us in this regard. Because I believe that every single one of us needs to be grounded in the gospel in various ways and more fully dependent upon the Spirit in various ways. And I'm going to uh, lead out in some prayer, and I want you to think about your lives in these three contexts. Lord, as I am growing in the gospel, or I'm getting newly introduced to the gospel, am I struggling in the area of being particular about those I've led in my life? Am I struggling in the area of being peculiar? Or am I just simply not planted? I mean, I'm, I'm in soil, but my fruit production is always strangled and choked by the circumstances of life. Or what seem, when I'm right on the edge of growing, it seems like it's always stolen because the word is not going deeply. It's always living on the surface. Am I, am I a person who is particular and peculiar? Am I planted? These are the three questions I want you to ask. But, but one of those questions, I want you to begin praying with the people that are around you. I'm going to turn my mic off and I'm going to pray, but I want you to also pray in this regard. And these are those prayers. Lord, do I need to be more particular? Lord, do I need to be more peculiar? Lord, how is it and where is it that I need to be more deeply planted? I'm going to pray for us and then uh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to turn my mic on. Don't be distracted when I turn my mic back on. I'm just praying for us. Uh, you unplug. Father, in the name of Jesus.
Father God, I um, I hold up before you a person that is not planted, not planted at all. They've heard the seeds of the word, but they've never fully believed. Therefore, they're not planted in your truth. They're not planted in the gospel. That person has heard all of these religious ideas. They recognize them as being uniquely and distinctly Christian, but they've never just kind of taken that into the soil of their life and taken it seriously. I pray for that person, oh God, that as they find themselves in this room and they see the need for change, they see the need for something different, that that first fundamental difference that they would seek out is to repent. Even if they don't use these words, Lord God, show them in their own context and language what it means to turn toward you and reach out for you to you as their source and as their supply and as their definer of true success. I pray for the personal God who does know you, but they're fighting to be fruitful because life has so many distractions. I pray, oh God, that you would not allow that person's fruit to be choked by the circumstances of life or by the persecutions of their environment or the difficulties that they're working through, but you would in this season would deepen their root in a way that only you can do. And if they need to be replanted in a place, Lord God, that has a greater access to, to your spirit supply, let it be so. Lord God, I pray for the person who knows you and is fruitful and fighting to just multiply all the more, but, but they don't have a particular community to be fruitful with. Their counselors, where they find their comfort, and those that they run with, their crew, Lord God, it's not a consistent community and, and you want them to experience the ultimate fruitfulness that comes from being in a consistent community. They know you, Lord God, they love you. They just don't have a local church that they're a part of. And that's the one thing that's missing from next level fruitfulness in their lives. To be a people who are not only enjoying your gifts, but also being a conduit that others would enjoy the goodness of who you are by seeing it grown and worked out in their own lives. Oh God, would you move on that person's heart and give them the clear indication that maybe this is the church? And Lord God, if this ain't the church, Lord God, by all means, help them to find the right church. But that person is moving around, looking for a place to be planted so that they could grow more fortuitously. And the missing piece is that they are adrift and don't have a consistent community with whom to be accountable to help them sort their fruit. Lord God, lead them to where they need to go. Give them the clearest indication of where they should be in all of that. pray for the personal God who's listening to me and the adversary has flown overhead and stolen almost every seed. They feel like they need to leave, but they can't. Feel like they have no clue what's being said or what's going on, but for some reason they're stuck to their seat. I pray for that person, oh God, that you would locate them, you would find them in your own unique way by your spirit that I could never do. I pray, oh God, if they don't come to know you here, that maybe they'll sit in their car in the parking lot and, and just kind of rest their head on the steering wheel and say, Lord, I need you and I don't know how. Would you meet me in my need? Oh God, would you meet every one of us in a place that we need you? 
This is our earnest prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.